From New York, this is Democracy Now! Climate change is an emergency. And in the coming weeks, I'm going to use the power I have as president to turn these words into formal, official government actions. As heat waves scorch the United States, Europe, Asia, and Africa, President Biden vows to take more steps to address the climate crisis, but stop short of declaring a national climate emergency. We'll speak to the Center for Biological Diversity. Then a new study finds U.S. greenhouse emissions have caused nearly $2 trillion in damages to other countries. We'll go to Uganda to speak with Vanessa Nakate and look at how the climate crisis is causing water widespread drought in Africa. And the other horrible reality of the climate crisis is that while communities in Africa or in the global south are on the front lines of the climate crisis, they are not on the front pages of the world's newspapers. Plus, we'll speak with George Mambio in Britain, where temperatures were shattered this week, sparking fires across London. We'll also talk to him about the war in Ukraine and the race to replace British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A federal appeals court in Georgia's ruled the state's near-total ban on abortion can take effect immediately. The 2019 law outlaws abortions once fetal cardiac activity is present. It also changes the definition of a natural person to include fetuses that have formed in utero after just a few weeks, before many people even realize they're pregnant. The law provides for limited exceptions for rape and but a survivor must first file a police report. Another provision allows limited exceptions for medical emergencies. In a joint statement, the American Civil Liberties Union, the Center for Reproductive Rights and Planned Parenthood said, quote, this is a highly unorthodox action that will immediately push essential abortion care out of reach for patients beyond the earliest stages of pregnancy. Across the state, providers are now being forced to turn away patients who thought they would be able to access abortion immediately changing the course of their lives and futures, they said. The House of Representatives votes today on a bill guaranteeing access to contraceptives under federal law. House Democrats introduced the bill after Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas suggested in a concurrent opinion to the Dobbs v. Jackson case overturning Roe that he's open to reviewing previous rulings on marriage equality, reproductive rights, access to contraception and other issues. Russia's foreign minister says the Kremlin is seeking to seize more land in Ukraine than just the eastern Donbass region. On Wednesday, Sergei Lavrov told a Russian state news agency peace talks with Ukraine had failed and that Russia now seeks to control a large swath of southern Ukraine. This comes as the Biden administration's warning Russia's preparing to formally annex parts of occupied eastern and southern Ukraine this fall, when it'll force residents to move their assets to Russian banks and to apply for Russian citizenship. On Capitol Hill, Ukraine's First Lady has appealed to the United States Congress for more heavy weaponry. Elena Zelenska's address to lawmakers came as the war entered its sixth month. 
I appeal to all of you on behalf of those who were killed, on behalf of those who lost their arms and legs, on behalf of those who are still alive and well, and those who wait for their families to come back from the front lines. I'm asking for something now that I would never want to ask for. I am asking for weapons, weapons that would not be used to wage a war on somebody else's land, but to protect one's home and the right to wake up alive in that home. In May, President Biden signed a bill granting Ukraine $40 billion in humanitarian and military assistance, by far the largest U.S. foreign aid package in decades. Zelensky's request for more weapons comes as the Senate's considering a national defense bill that would see the U.S. spend a record-shattering $846 billion on the military in the next fiscal year. That's $45 billion, more than the record request President Biden made earlier this year. In Brussels, Belgium, leaders of the European Union say Russian gas is once again flowing through a pipeline under the Baltic Sea to Germany, albeit at a reduced volume. The operator of the Nord Stream 1 had taken the pipeline offline for 10 days of scheduled maintenance earlier this month, prompting fears among European leaders that Russia would cut off supplies entirely. Europe remains highly dependent on Russian gas, despite EU sanctions targeting other Russian commodities. Here in the United States, dangerously hot weather will impact millions of people again today. In Texas, forecasters are predicting highs of 109 degrees in Dallas and 115 degrees in Wichita Falls, Texas. The extreme heat fueled wildfires outside Glen Rose in North Texas that have burned thousands of acres and destroyed 16 homes. President Biden traveled to Massachusetts Wednesday to outline new efforts to combat the climate crisis. He spoke from a former coal plant in Somerset, which is being converted into a plant to make supplies for offshore wind farms. Biden said he would give $2.3 billion to FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, to help communities become more resilient to heat waves, drought and wildfire. Biden called the current state of the climate an emergency, but stopped short of declaring a formal declaration. This is an emergency. An emergency. And I will. I will look at it that way. I said last week, and I'll say it again loud and clear. As president, I'll use my executive powers to combat climate, the climate crisis in the absence of congressional action. Biden's speech came as more than 100 million people in the United States are under heat advisories. Europe suffers from record heat and searing drought across much of Africa, leading to widespread crop failures and hunger. After headlines, we'll spend the entire show on the climate crisis. A House committee provided a trove of emails and documents detailing how Trump and his allies sought to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census in order to help Republicans win elections. The document's release came as the Committee on Oversight and Reform wrapped up a years-long investigation concluding senior Trump administration officials added the citizenship question in order to deliberately exclude non-citizens from the count. The Census Bureau estimates 18.8 million people were left out of the most recent census, with communities of color undercounted at far higher rates than in previous censuses. This week, the committee's Democratic chair, Carolyn Maloney, introduced the Ensuring a Fair and Accurate Census Act. She said, quote, it's clear that legislative reforms are needed to prevent any future illegal or unconstitutional efforts to interfere with the census and chip away at our democracy, unquote. 
In Wisconsin, the Republican Speaker of the State Assembly says President Trump recently called to urge him to overturn Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 election. The revelation came from Robin Voss this week, came after Trump attacked Voss on social media as a rhino—that's a Republican in name only—who was letting Democrats, quote, get away with murder. Voss was asked about the interaction by Matt Smith of the Milwaukee ABC affiliate WISN in an interview that aired Tuesday. When's the last time you talked to the former president, President Trump? Uh, within the last week. Within the last week? Yeah. Before or after he tweeted about you? Uh, before. And what was that conversation like? Uh, you know, it's one of those that, that it's very consistent. He makes his case, which I respect. Um, he would like us to do something different in Wisconsin. I explained that it's not allowed under the Constitution. He has a different opinion. Then he put the tweet out. So that's it. Yeah. Robin Voss has previously echoed Trump's false statements that the 2020 election was rigged, but has not moved to decertify Joe Biden's Electoral College win in Wisconsin. In Arizona, the state Republican Party's executive committee has censured state House Speaker Russell Bowers after he told the House January 6th committee Trump and his lawyer Rudy Giuliani pressured him to overturn Joe Biden's 2020 election victory in Arizona. Arizona Republican Party chair Kelly Ward confirmed Bowers' censure this week in a statement declaring him, quote, no longer a Republican in good standing, unquote. Kelly Ward is a former Arizona state senator. According to Politico, she and her husband are under investigation by the Justice Department after they joined an effort to deliver false slates of electors to Congress, certifying Trump, not Biden, the winner of the 2020 election in Arizona. A former White House aide to Donald Trump went on a racist, sexist rant this week, just after he met with the lawmakers investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Garrett Ziegler posted the 27-minute rant as an audio file to his Telegram page, where he verbally attacked witnesses who provided damning testimony against the former president and ra railed against leaders of the House Select Committee on January 6th attacks. They're Bolsheviks, so they probably do hate the American founders and most white people in general. This is a Bolshevistic anti-white campaign. If you can't see that, your eyes are freaking closed. And so they see me as a, uh, a, a young Christian who they can try to basically scare, right? Garrett Ziegler went on to use misogynistic epithets to attack two former women colleagues who testified against Trump, Cassidy Hutchinson and Alyssa Farah. President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, has been ordered to testify to a grand jury in Georgia as part of a criminal probe into efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis revealed Wednesday Giuliani has been ordered to testify August 9th after he failed to appear at a hearing earlier this month. The investigation appears to be focused on 16 Georgia Republicans who signed up as fake electors after Joe Biden won Georgia. But the probe also appears to be aimed at Trump's request to the Georgia Secretary of State in January 2021 that he, quote, find 11,780 votes, unquote, enough to declare Trump the victor in Georgia. In Washington, D.C., the government rested its case Wednesday in the trial of President Trump's former top adviser, Steve Bannon, who's charged with criminal contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with the House Select Committee on the January 6th attack on the Capitol. 
This evening, the committee will hold its eighth public hearing in a primetime hearing that will be carried by all the major U.S. television networks. Committee Chair Benny Thompson, who's recovering from COVID-19 from isolation, will appear remotely. The hearing will feature two White House aides who quit on January 6, White House Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Matthews. Last January, Matthews tweeted on the first anniversary of the attack, quote, make no mistake, the events on the January on the 6th were a coup attempt, a term we'd use had they happened in any other country, she said. At this evening's hearings, lawmakers will show unseen outtakes of video Trump made to supporters on January 7th, when he resisted pressure from aides to condemn the violence. Tonight's hearing begins at 8 p.m. Eastern. DemocracyNow.org will be live streaming it in its entirely uh, entirety. We'll air extended excerpts on Friday's broadcast. The United States says it's repatriated a Guantanamo Bay prisoner to his home country of Afghanistan. The U.S. released Asadullah Harun Gul last month after he was jailed at Guantanamo Bay for 15 years without trial. A federal court ruled his detention was illegal and ordered his release. Human rights group Reprieve said Gould suffered severe physical and psychological torture during his stay in Guantanamo, including being beaten, hung by his wrists, and deprived of food and water. Of the remaining 36 prisoners now held at Guantanamo, 19 have been cleared for release. El Salvador's President Nayib Bukele has extended a nationwide state of emergency, citing the risk of criminal gangs. It's the third time he's extended emergency rules since March, when he granted authority sweeping powers to arrest and try people without due process. Tens of thousands have been arrested. Amnesty International says the crackdown has led to massive human rights violations, including thousands of arbitrary detentions and violations of due process, as well as torture treatment and the deaths of at least 18 people in state custody. Today. On Tuesday, relatives of people swept up in the crackdown took to the streets of San Salvador in protest. One mother, Maria Sebastian Amaya, said the police are arresting and jailing innocent people simply because they live in poor neighborhoods. We know our families are not related to the gangs. If we live in those communities, it is because we don't have anywhere else to go. We have to live there because we are poor. And the police arrive and capture whomever is there. They do not do a background check. Nothing. I demand my son's freedom. Protesters in Panama have brought much of their nation to a halt, setting up roadblocks to demand more jobs, relief from soaring food and fuel prices, and an end to official corruption. Over the weekend, Panama's government agreed to lower fuel prices and open talks with protest leaders over curbing the cost of some food and medicine. But demonstrations resumed this week after those talks fell apart. This is Cesar Choa, a union leader who led recent protests of construction workers in the city of Santiago de Veraguas. After the 1989 invasion, when the gringos intervened in our nation, from that moment, the alleged democracy was installed in our state. But it's a democracy that robs the poor to feed the rich. It's a democracy that has been ruining the lives of all Panamanians. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, joined by Democracy Now! co-host... Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. 
Well, today we're spending the hour looking at the climate crisis across the world, from Europe to Asia to Africa to here in the United States, where we begin. On Wednesday, President Biden traveled to Somerset, Massachusetts, to outline new efforts to combat the climate crisis, including expanding offshore wind power and giving $2.3 billion to FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, to help communities become more resilient to heat waves, drought and wildfire. Biden's speech came as more than 100 million people people in the United States are under heat advisories. He spoke at a former coal plant, which is being turned into an offshore wind facility. Climate change is literally an existential threat to our nation and to the world. So my message today is this. Since Congress is not acting as it should, and these guys here are, but we're not getting many Republican votes, this is an emergency. An emergency. And I will. I will look at it that way. I said last week, and I'll say it again loud and clear. As president, I'll use my executive powers to combat climate, the climate crisis in the absence of congressional action, notwithstanding their incredible action. Well, President Biden repeatedly described the climate crisis as an emergency on Wednesday. He stopped short of declaring a national climate emergency, a move sought by many progressive lawmakers and climate activists. We go now to Jean Sue, Energy Justice Director and Senior Attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity. She recently co-wrote a report detailing how the president could use his emergency powers to address the climate crisis. Um, Jean, can you start off by talking about what it would mean if he does declare a climate emergency, and what does it mean that he didn't do it yesterday? Absolutely. So right now, uh, for the first time, President Biden Jean, uh, you seem to have broken up, but we're going to go to another clip of President Biden speaking yesterday in Massachusetts. That's why today I'm making the largest investment ever, $2.3 billion to help communities across the country build infrastructure that's designed to withstand the full range of disasters we've been seeing up to today. Extreme heat, drought, flooding, hurricanes, tornadoes. Right now, there are millions of people suffering from extreme heat at home. So my team is also working with the state to deploy $385 million right now For the first time, states will be able to use federal funds to pay for air conditioners in homes, set up community cooling centers in schools where people can get through these extreme heat crises. Not a single Republican in Congress stepped up to support my climate plan. Not one. So let me be clear. Climate change is an emergency. And in the coming weeks, I'm going to use the power I have as president to turn these words into formal, official government actions through the appropriate proclamations, executive orders, and regulatory power that a president possesses. When it comes to fighting for climate change, climate change, I will not take no for an answer. Again, Jean Sue, President Biden used the term emergency five or six times during the speech, but did not actually declare a national climate emergency its significance. 
Yes. So President Biden did not declare a climate emergency yesterday. We absolutely need him to do that. It is an incredible rallying cry if President Biden can actually articulate that we are in a climate emergency and unleash all the tools in his toolbox as the president to really combat the crisis in front of us. The other part of the climate emergency declaration is that it signals to the entire world and Americans that President Biden is no longer going to have a confused or slow-walked climate policy, that he is going to have an all-hands-on-deck approach to the suffering that we are all experiencing right now across the world. Jean Su, your uh, organization, the Center for Biological Diversity, uh, was involved in litigation against Trump's use of emergency powers to build uh, uh, the wall along the Mexico border. Uh, could you I elaborate on, on that case and, and how it might be relevant today? Absolutely. Uh, so I personally litigated that case. And in that case, President Trump declared the what is happening at the border as an emergency. In fact, it isn't an emergency. We know that immigration is happening across the border, um, and we've known for some time, and we also know the pinch points of where that was. Um, in terms of that case, he actually took money um, from the military after Congress actually said, no, you can't have more than $1 billion at that point. Um, and he went against Congress redistributed that money towards construction of the border wall using illegally using an emergency power that only allows military spending to be redirected for military purposes to help to help the military. Uh, several groups litigated against President Trump for abusing these emergency powers and going against Congress's will to do that type of border wall construction. Eventually, that case was mooted out because the Biden administration uh, stopped constructing. Uh, but one district court did find that it was illegal for President Trump to use those military funds in that way because it was not actually going towards helping the military. And Jean, could you outline what are the measures that Biden could take in the event that he does declare an emergency? Absolutely. So the Biden administration, if they declare a climate emergency, actually unlocks additional emergency powers as well as ordinary powers to deal with the climate emergency. Some of the emergency powers are very powerful tools uh, to turn off the spigot for fossil fuels. One of them would be to reinstate our crude oil export ban, which has allowed the fracking and explosion of oil uh, in the Permian Basin. Another is to actually stop offshore drilling right now that is happening in the ocean. And finally, another power would allow him to stop the hundreds of billions of dollars every year that private corporations like BlackRock, like all of our private banks, are sending abroad to build fossil fuel plants and poisoning and endangering communities there. So if you could also respond uh, to what should happen with Senator Manchin, uh, now that he has scuttled uh, the climate deal, saying he would not support a climate bill in the Senate. 
unfortunately, we've wasted too much time thinking about Senator Manchin and relying on Congress. I think one of the mistakes that the administration and all of us have made uh, since Biden began is that there was an explicit focus with all eggs on legislation. In fact, he's always had these executive powers at his fingertips to combat climate with the full force of his executive uh, quiver. And we're asking him to move on that. He did not move on that and waited for, for Senator Manchin. We cannot wait any longer. In fact, those executive powers should have been used on day one at the same time as pursuing legislation. So now that we've seen that Congress is in, in flux again and people are still waiting on the whim of Senator Manchin and whether he's going to say yes or no, we don't have time for those games. We can't afford those games. And we have to go full force on executive actions. A meme has been going around um, that says the Koch brothers still own a lot of real estate, but their best investment may be the mansion they bought in West Virginia. Um, Jean Sue, we want to thank you so much for being with us, Energy Justice Director and Senior Attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity. But we're staying on the issue of climate. Coming up, we're going to Uganda to speak with the climate justice activist, Vanessa Nakate, about the climate crisis in Africa. And then we'll go to Britain, where records have been smashed around heat, and speak with George Mambio. Stay with us. by the British Ugandan musician Michael Kiwanuka. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. As we look at who bears the brunt of the climate emergency, a new report finds greenhouse emissions from the United States caused nearly $2 trillion in damages to other mostly poor countries through heat waves, droughts and dr crop failures since 1990. This includes $310 billion in damage to Brazil, $257 billion in damage to India, $124 billion to Indonesia, $104 billion in damage to Venezuela, and $74 billion in Nigeria. Scientists at Dartmouth College published their research in the journal Climatic Change and say it could shape international climate negotiations between poor nations and rich countries that burn more coal, oil and gas. Meanwhile, a new Greenpeace UK report makes the link between the climate emergency and the legacy of colonialism, which it says, quote, established a model through which the 
air and lands of the global south have been used as places to dump waste the uh, global north does not want. A study by CARE International found the 10 most underreported humanitarian crises in 2021 were concentrated in the global south, with six in Africa alone. For more, we go to Kampala, Uganda, to speak with climate justice activist Vanessa Nakate, author of A Bigger Picture, My Fight to Bring a New African Voice to the Climate Crisis. In a Twitter thread this week, Vanessa lamented how little Western media covers the disproportionate impact of the climate crisis on Africa. Vanessa, welcome back to Democracy Now! Tell us what uh, the world should understand about what's happening, um, not only in Uganda, but on the African continent, as we deal with this global climate emergency. Thank you so much. It's important for the world to know that the climate crisis hasn't just started. The climate crisis has been affecting the lives of so many people right now. When I speak from my country, because of the rising global temperatures, we have seen changes in weather patterns that have caused, you know, events like floods, like landslides and droughts. Currently, over 500,000 people in the region of Karamoja are starving because they have no food to eat. And when you go beyond Uganda, we are seeing a drought that has left over 20 million people with no access to food in the Horn of Africa. So what I want people to understand is that the climate crisis has been here. It has been impacting the lives of so many people on the African continent, which is responsible for less than 4% of the global emissions. But while Africa is on the front lines of this crisis, it is not on the front pages of the world's newspapers. Vanessa Nakate, as you point out, uh, Africa is, is responsible for less than 4% of global emissions. And, of course, the, the cumulative population of Africa is uh, just over 17% of the global population. Now, you recently retweeted uh, an article headlined, Seven Stunning Facts About How Climate Change Is Hitting Africa the Hardest. Among those facts... Almost a quarter of a billion Africans will face water scarcity in just three years, that is by 2025. In southern Africa, tropical storms displaced half a million people in just three months this year. And one in three deaths from extreme weather occur in Africa. Could you, could you elaborate on this and why you think the coverage of this is so limited? Well, first of all, I'll say that media has a huge responsibility to cover the climate crisis, but it has a much bigger responsibility to cover the climate crisis in the places where people are already suffering some of the worst impacts. When we talk about things like food scarcity, things like water scarcity, these are things that are already happening right now in the African continent. For example, in the region of Karamoja, like I've said, in Uganda, people are struggling to find something to eat, to find water. In the Horn of Africa, over 20 million people are struggling to find food, to find water. And in the process, even the people's livestock are perishing. So when we say, you know, that water scarcity is going to be a challenge for so many people on the African continent in just three years, 
it doesn't mean that the scarcity will start when those three years are finally finished. It is something that is happening right now. When we talk about people being forced to leave their homes to find somewhere to stay, it's not that that is something that is coming in the few years. It is something that is already unfolding. We know that over 86 million Africans are going to be forced to leave their homes, to look for places where they can stay, where they can exist because of the climate crisis. Same with climate change. When we talk about the climate crisis going to escalate and affect so many communities, so many people in just a few years, it doesn't mean that the crisis is coming in those years. It means that it's already happening right now, but it's just going to make the lives of so many people harder and affect the livelihoods of so many communities. And Vanessa, a recent study showed uh, on top of this massive climate crisis that Africa is facing that many countries in Africa, 11 of them, will have to spend five times more on climate adaptation than they do on health care. Uh, among these 11 countries, uh, Cameroon, Chad, the DRC and Sudan, these countries are among the least to contribute to global emissions. On average, they emit 27 times less per person than the global average, not even the average of countries in the north. So could you explain what uh, climate adaptation involves and why there's so little financing for it for these countries that face the worst effects and have been responsible for so little of the emissions? Yes, I'll first of all say that that's one of the inequalities, the horrible inequalities of the climate crisis, that those who are not responsible are suffering the worst impacts, and they have to spend so much for mitigation and adaptation of their communities. We know that $100 billion was promised for vulnerable communities, vulnerable countries that are on the front lines of the climate crisis. But it was only promised and it wasn't delivered. But it's important for people to know that the $100 billion is no longer enough. The climate crisis has pushed so many countries in Africa in places where they cannot adapt anymore. We are experiencing loss and damage in so many places. So now the demand is not just for climate finance, for mitigation and adaptation. There is a demand for a loss and damage facility to address the loss and damage that is already happening. As the climate crisis escalates, people cannot adapt to starvation. People in the Horn of Africa can't adapt to starvation. People can't adapt to the loss of their livelihoods. They can't adapt to the loss of their cultures, the loss of their identities as this crisis escalates. So we've moved from a place of demanding for $100 billion to saying that even the $100 billion is no longer enough. More climate finance is needed, not in promises, real money for communities to be able to adapt, to be able to mitigate, and also in addition to that, to address the loss and damage that is affecting so many people. 
Vanessa Nakate, I think what's happening in the United States is a microcosm of what's happening in the world. Um, President Joe Biden created an Office of Climate Change and Health Equity within the Health and Human Services Department to prepare the nation's health care system to deal with the growing and inevitable disparate health effects of extreme heat and dangerous storms and worsening air pollution. While that office has been created uh, to deal with with climate affects the inequity of them, it, Congress has not funded it. Um, and then you look at the rest of the world and the relationship of the United States, the massive effects um, of our policies and climate and what it, the effects it has on places like Africa. But I wanted to ask you about the war in Ukraine and talk about this um, coming together of both the effects of the war in Ukraine on Africa, as well as coming on top of this ongoing climate emergency? Yes, I will start by saying that we are in a system that is allowing so many of these problems to happen. It's like we are in one room, and if one part of the room is affected, eventually the entire building will come crumbling down. If it's a puzzle, if one part of the puzzle, if a piece of the puzzle is missing, then that puzzle can never be complete. So a system can never be complete if one of the things is not well. And we know that the war in Ukraine is a war that is being funded by fossil fuels. And many activists, many people have been organizing to demand a shift from fossil fuels to renewable energy, because we've seen that fossil fuels are not only destroying our planet and the lives of so many people, but they are also fueling and funding wars in many parts of the world. So it's important to note that we have to change the system to address many of these challenges. I would also like to comment on something that you've said of what was created by President Biden. That is one of the things that we are trying to talk about, that the communities that are being impacted right now, they don't have the resources to put in place, you know, the necessary bodies to help people, you know, address issues of health when it comes to the climate crisis. But the countries in the global north have these resources. They have the resources to adapt, but they are not extending these resources to the most affected communities. When we see how the climate crisis is impacting the health of so many people on the African continent and beyond that, across the global south, many of the countries don't have the much needed resources to address these challenges. So the global north has the resources for themselves. But it's time to extend those resources for the communities that are on the front lines, for the communities that didn't cause this crisis. Because if we are to address climate change, then we shouldn't, we shouldn't leave anyone behind. And Vanessa, finally, you've spoken out uh, against the East African crude oil pipeline also being uh, uh, built by uh, the French uh, oil giant Total and the China National Offshore Oil Corporation. Uh, if and when it's completed, it will be the longest heated crude oil pipeline in the world. Can you talk about your concerns about this pipeline and specifically the areas that it's expected to run through? Yes, the pipeline is expected to go from Uganda to Tanzania. 
And many of the worries that we have, especially as activists, is that this pipeline is going to displace thousands of people in Uganda and also in Tanzania. And it's going to go through a number of national parks, you know, affecting the, the, the wildlife habitats. It's going to go through one of the you know, it's going to go through over 200 rivers. It's going to go through Lake Victoria, which is the largest inland freshwater lake, you know, in Africa. It's a third of it is going to go through the Lake Victoria Basin. And over 40 million people depend on the waters of Lake Victoria. So there are worries about how it's going to impact the water sources of the people in our communities, how it's going to impact the national parks but above all, how it's going to impact our planet and lead to the rise in the global temperatures. And as activists, we face many challenges, especially in our communities where people think that we are against the development of our countries. We are not against the development of our countries. We want the best for our countries. And we know that there is no future in the fossil fuel industry. What our countries need is a transition to clean energy, a transition to renewable energy, because this is something that will help lift people out of poverty. Because I know and understand that our countries are trying to lift their communities out of poverty. And corporations like Total are taking advantage of this, knowing how much, you know, oil, coal and gas are causing so many, you know, challenges in many communities. We are seeing some European countries run for gas still in Africa. So it's important for people to know that we want the well-being of our communities, the well-being of the people in our countries. We want the well-being of the economies of our countries, but we don't want it funded by fossil fuels because there is no future in that. We want a transition to renewable energy, to clean energy, to ensure that we not only have uh, healthy people, but we also have healthy economies, healthy planet, a healthy planet and a healthy future for all of us. Vanessa Nakate, we want to thank you for being with us, climate justice activist, joining us from Kampala, Uganda, author of A Bigger Picture, My Fight to Bring a New African Voice to the Climate Crisis. Coming up, we go to George Mambio in Britain, where temperature records have been shattered this week, sparking fires across London. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We go now to Britain, 
which shattered its record for highest temperature ever recorded Tuesday, with the London Fire Brigade declaring a major incident in response to a huge surge in fires across the capital. This comes amidst a heat wave scorching much of Europe and more fires in France, Britain's national weather forecaster said this week. The high temperatures are now a fact of life amidst concerns the country's not prepared for the heat. For more, we go to George Mambio, author, environmental activist, Guardian columnist, where his latest piece is headlined, This Heat Wave Has Eviscerated the Idea That Small Changes Can Tackle Extreme Weather. His 2021 article, Capitalism is Killing the Planet, It's Time to Stop Buying into Our Own Destruction, has just won the Orwell Prize for Journalism. George Mambio, welcome back to Democracy Now! Well, why don't you first describe what it's like in Britain right now, why this is so unusual, and what are the remedies? So, by comparison to what many other parts of the world have been suffering, particularly India this year and large parts of sub-Saharan Africa, you might not think it's very much. Two days of 40 degree, 40 degree centigrade heat. But for Britain, which is famous for its mild, not to say rather grey and chilly and rainy climate, it was a massive shock. Stepping outside and feeling like you were walking into a fan oven because of the the hot wind blowing off the streets into your face. It just felt all wrong. It felt like something has gone very badly awry here in this famously chilly and mild climate. And um, and it it bust all the records. We saw saw the sort of wildfires, which are totally unfamiliar. Um, in in the parts of the UK where they happened. And it looks like a glimpse of a future that's rushing towards us all too quickly. These are the sort of weather events that climate scientists were saying, well, you know, we might see this with two degrees, possibly three degrees of heating. Well, here we are at 1.2 degrees centigrade of global heating, and it has already come. I would just say, uh, George, that, you know, I I lived in in London not very long ago in Cambridge and in London. And I remember that we didn't even have fans, uh, uh, Mm. much less air conditioning. So it's really staggering, uh, uh, this uh, heat wave. Uh, I want to ask about uh, what how people are responding, uh, what steps are being taken to uh, avert this climate crisis. In the piece we just cited on capitalism for which you won the Orwell Prize, uh, you offer a scathing critique of the way we're dealing with the crisis, focusing on what you term, quote, micro-consumerist bollocks. Could you explain? Sure. So, so what we're saying to people as environmentalists is, look, we're, we're facing the greatest existential crisis that humanity has ever faced. We're facing the potential collapse of our life support systems, a domino effect as one Earth system pulls down the others until basically the habitable space on the planet collapses into a completely different equilibrium state for which we did not evolve. So this is like the biggest of all existential crises which humanity has ever faced. And they're saying now, in response... We want you um, not to use so many plastic bags and to replace your cotton buds, which have got plastic shafts with ones with paper shafts, and stop using plastic straws. 
I mean, it's, it sounds ridiculous when I say it like this, but this is genuinely what a large portion of the environmental movement has been doing. Um, and and calling for the most micro possible solutions to the most macro possible problem. And what happens when you do that is, is you know, far from making it easier to make change and far from telling people, look, there's something easy you can do so you can buy into this. There's a very low threshold for getting engaged. They just turn people off altogether because, number one, people say, well, they can't be serious. Obviously, it can't be that much of a problem if the solutions are so tiny. So this isn't something I need to worry about. Uh, and those who have got a bit more knowledge of it, well, they must feel like they're being taken for idiots. Like, you know, how, how, how can that solve anything? How is that going to fix the issue? But unfortunately, this micro-consumerist bollocks is the dominant narrative within the media, but also within a lot of environmental organisations. And when you approach those organisations and say, look, this isn't going to cut it, you know, the, these small incremental changes you're calling for, even sort of slightly bigger ones than the ones I've mentioned, you know, they're in no way commensurate with the scale of the crisis we face. And they say, well, we can't get too far ahead of the membership and we don't want to frighten people and we don't want to provoke a fight with the government and, you know, we've got to reach people where they are. And frankly, their theory of change is just wrong. Incremental change can never develop the, the, the transformation which is required in situations like this, in fact, probably in any situation, it just does not deliver. The only thing that delivers quickly and effectively is system change. And while we've been messing about with these ridiculous micro solutions, the radical right has instituted a global insurgency and has achieved system change. It's tearing down democracy. It's tearing down equality before the law. It's tearing down basic rights, human rights, tearing down regulations, tearing down tax, ripping down everything and changing the system to suit billionaires, to suit oligarchs, to suit predatory corporations. Well, we've been saying, oh, yes, we're a bit, you know, we're not a bit worried about asking for too much. They've said we're going to have the lot. And they're succeeding. So what they've proved is that you can do system change. Unfortunately, you know, proved it in all the most horrible ways. And and our timidity, our failure to demand that system change has been a big part of the reason why we are stuck where we are and why there's been almost no effective measures to address this greatest of all crises. And, you know, some of us know exactly what we want. You know, we want what I call private sufficiency, public luxury, where, you know, we have our own domain, our own small domain at home where, you know, we've got our own home and we've got uh, uh, the necessities that we need in that home. But if we want luxury, we should pursue it in the public domain because there's just simply not enough physical or ecological space for everyone to pursue private luxury. You know, if everyone has a has a private jet and a supercar, that's the planet gone in, in hours. You know, we just burn through everything if that were the case. Um, if everyone in London had their own swimming pool and their own tennis court and their own art collection, London would have to be as big as England in order to accommodate that. England would be the size of Europe. Where would everyone else live? It's just impossible. You know, this whole idea that we can all become millionaires is impossible for two reasons. One, some people are super rich because other people are super poor. 
And that extreme wealth depends on exploitation. But secondly, there's just not enough planetary space to permit that. But there is enough space for everyone to have public luxury, um, public swimming pools and public tennis courts and a public health service and public transport. And that creates space for people rather than take it away. And because we're sharing those resources, the impact per capita is much, much smaller. So that's one part of it. We need donut economics, Kate Rayworth's approach, where we say, you know, we live within planetary boundaries, but above the welfare boundary so that everyone has a good life without rupturing um, Earth systems. Um, we need Jeremy Lent's uh, approach towards an ecological civilization. And we need participatory democracy, building on the ideas of Murray Bookchin and the practice of places like Porto Alegre in Brazil and Reykjavik in Iceland and Taiwan, um, um, where there's great examples of how we can take back our politics and, and run them ourselves. So some of us are very clear about the system change we want to see. But very few of us are actually prepared to call for that system change. And that has been our great failing. And George, I'd like to ask you about your, your recent book, A Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, the link between uh, the climate crisis and hunger. We were just speaking to uh, Vanessa Nakate, the uh, Ugandan climate justice activist, who was telling us about what the effects of the drought have been uh, in the Horn of Africa and elsewhere. So if you could talk about the argument you make in the book, and in particular, uh, why you think animal agriculture is particularly ruinous. Yes. Well, first of all, many thanks to Vanessa for all her brilliant activism. She is so inspiring, such a wonderful person. And thank you for having her on your programme. So, you know, it's become clear to me that looking at it from the global perspective you know, as a whole, it is now as important to stop animal agriculture as it is to leave fossil fuels in the ground. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, people in Somalia should st stop keeping animals. That's clearly their only lifeline. But for the great majority of us and for people in the United States, for people in the UK where I am, you know, we've just got to stop eating animals because that is the primary environmental driver of destruction. So agriculture as a whole is the major cause of habitat loss, the major cause of of wildlife loss, the major cause of extinction, the major cause of land use, the major cause of freshwater use, of soil degradation, one of the major causes of climate breakdown, of water pollution, of air pollution. And, and, and you know, it, it's, it's, and by far away, the biggest chunk of that is from animal agriculture. And it's up there with the fossil fuel industry as the driver of, of mass destruction. Um, Plant-based diets are, are, are much more benign, but you can go a lot further than that. And now we have these um, new technologies, including precision fermentation, which is basically producing your protein-rich foods, not from um, the flesh and the secretions of animals, but from single-celled organisms, from, from microbes, and you brew them. It's just a sophisticated form of brewing, really. Now, there are many, many good things about this because it greatly reduces the environmental impact of producing your protein-rich foods. But importantly, it can be done anywhere. You don't need to have fertile land. You don't need to have water. You don't need to have the other elements to be able to produce food from farming. So it can be done in the Horn of Africa. It can be done across the Sahel. It can be done in the Middle East and across North Africa, producing protein-rich and fat-rich foods. You, you have basically a microbial flour, which can then be turned into virtually anything. And this, I think, could be the only chance now 
for companies to uh, so for countries to break um, their dependency on these multinational companies which are controlling global trade where we have four corporations now control 90% of the global grain trade which leaves those countries incredibly vulnerable they're at the end of a long and highly fragile food chain the global food system itself has lost its resilience it's beginning to look very much like the financial system in the approach to 2008 and if it breaks it'll be those poor nations which get hit first and worst as always and we're talking about the absolute cutting off potentially of food imports for some of those nations a lot of that food passes through choke points one of those choke points is more or less completely closed now which is the turkish straits due to um, russia's invasion of ukraine last year we saw another of those choke points the suez canal closed because that ship got wedged across it had those two things coincided the food chain would simply have snapped and about a quarter of the world's people would have been without food almost instantly because one of the things which this global food system has done is to switch from stocks to flows so basically our global food reserves are floating at sea in container ships and if those can't pass then the shelves empty almost instantly so so what precision fermentation gives you is this opportunity to break that formula and i can't see any other easy ways forward for for countries where the land just can't support people they're dependent on imports they're dependent on buying food from hard currency markets with soft currencies and they're extremely vulnerable to famine and food insecurity i want to turn to how one television station in england covered this week's heat wave in this clip that's gone viral gb news anchor bev turner interviews meteorologist john hammond we all like nice weather, but this will not be nice weather. This will be potentially lethal weather for a couple of days. It'll be brief, but it'll be brutal. Oh, so, John, you know, we can... We can Oh, oh, yeah. So this is so, John. I want us to be happy about the weather and everything. I don't know whether something's happened to meteorologists to make you all a little bit fatalistic and, and <laughs> harbingers of doom, because all of the broadcasts, particularly on on the BBC, every time I've turned on anyone's talking about the weather, they're saying that there's going to be tons of fatalities. But haven't we always had hot weather, John? I mean, wasn't the '76, the summer of '76, that was as hot as this, wasn't it? Uh, no. Uh, and, you know, we are seeing more and more records, more and more frequently and more and more severely. Uh, this has been uh, compared to the hit movie uh, Don't Look Up. Your response to this, and, and then if you can comment on um, the British prime minister's race and where the final two candidates stand on this critical issue. Mm. So, I mean, people said that Don't Look Up was an exaggeration, but honestly, the news anchors in Don't Look Up were not as stupid and as blinkered as the news anchors in that segment you've just seen. Um, it, it's it, when I saw Don't Look Up, it was like my life flashing before me. I thought this is all so familiar. This is also including completely losing it in a TV studio where you know I just couldn't take it anymore. The banality, the stupidity, the triviality. And I'm sorry to say, I, I just burst into tears, which is slightly mortifying. But, you know, and then when I saw Don't Look Up, I felt almost vindicated because, yeah, yeah, actually, that is the human way to respond to this utterly ridiculous, infuriating situation where these total morons are just dismissing the greatest threat to human welfare that has ever been. 
you know, how else can you respond to it? And, you know, kudos to John for keeping his cool. I don't know how he did it because I would have been bashing my head on the table that he was sitting at. Anyway, um, yes, so we're talking about total morons. We now have a race between um, Liz Truss and Richie Sunak to grab the helm of the Titanic as it starts going down. No, no, the brackets, the Conservative Party. Um, you could not have two less suitable people uh, for high office of any kind at all, let alone to be prime minister of this country. But they are going to be chosen not by the country as a whole, but by the members of the Conservative Party, who are about 200,000 people, mostly elderly, almost entirely white, mostly male, um, living in a very particular prosperous part of the country. Um, and so what these people have to do to become prime minister really is to appeal to the worst instincts of humanity. And that's how they win. And both of them are highly, are very well equipped to do that. Um, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak uh, basically are a con in concentrated form the worst instincts of, of humanity. And um, and they would be utterly devastating. I mean, we, we've had a terrible prime minister, the worst prime minister ever, perhaps, in the form of Boris Johnson. And it looks like they will continue that glorious tradition. Basically, what the Conservative Party in this country has become now that it's been stripped of all moderating influences is a channel for the demands of the most predatory and destructive forms of capital. And let's just say the British Prime Minister's addressing uh, Parliament just said, Boris Johnson, hasta la vista, baby. Your last five <laughs> seconds, George. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see the back of all of them. I mean, here we are, you know, we have in to this leave huge the pair. crisis. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm Amy Goodman with Norman Sheikh.